This show is supported by State Farm. You have insurance for your home, your health, and your car. Why don't you have insurance for your small business? So many small business owners think they don't need or don't even know about small business insurance. Protecting a source of revenue is one thing, but so is protecting all of your hard work and your team members. State Farm agents are all small business owners too, so they know how to help small business owners choose personalized policies that fit their budgets. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. The following podcast is equivalent to a TVMA rating, thanks to the author's strong and frequent use of adult language and graphic recollection of her sexual escapades. We strongly advise listening alone or with an extremely open-minded, politically incorrect companion, such as a gay bestie. Welcome to How Bitches Are Made. I'm your host, Rachel Melvin. Before we start this week's episode, I just want to remind you all to catch up on all of our episodes from Season 1, especially the introductory mini-sode, which introduces you to the cycle of how a bitch is made and makes following me on my journey that much easier. Now sit back, relax, and hold on to your panties, because Episode 12 starts now. The following is a true story, as sad as that is for me to admit. Names have been changed to protect the innocent and the anything but. Chapter 11, No Place to Call Home. I always suspected I'd find my tribe somewhere amongst the gay community, mostly because they are a people as politically incorrect and as sexually inappropriate as I am. And dancing to Lady Gaga amongst glitter-glazed abs while engaging in sophisticated conversations about all the different kinds of cock the world has to offer is where I feel the most at home. Which is why it wasn't all that surprising to find myself sharing a literal home with two gay guys earlier last year. It was how I ended up there, however, that was a surprise. And what transpired once I did. I'd spent nearly a year driving 120 miles back and forth from auditions in Los Angeles to renovations on my home in the desert. It was certainly one way to stave off the boredom most working actors in Hollywood inevitably face, but in a rapid and drastically changing industry, turning my house into a vacation rental was a way to generate a little income in between gigs as well. Plus, it had been doing wonders for my obsessive-compulsive personality, a disorder that, according to my ex at least, had been getting in the way of more than just my romantic relationship with him. Ever since I can remember, I've attempted to combat my anxiety over things I can't control by attempting to control the space around me. Even at age 12, I'd feverishly clean my parents' house, unable to concentrate enough to do my homework unless the space I was trying to do it in was clean. Just so much as a Christina Aguilera CD left out of its case on my dresser was enough to gnaw at me like the persistent itch of a mosquito bite. But now, after living in a construction zone at the mercy of an unlicensed contractor who ran on, quote, desert time, I realized chaos wasn't going to kill me. The dust from concrete grinders, on the other hand, well, only time can tell. But being forced to live in a state of perpetual transition had somehow managed to repair something in me I long felt never could be. And as my home improvement project drew to completion, I wondered how it might also affect other areas of my life as well. Like, say, for instance, my former relationship. I figured it was possible a solution for a problem in one area of a relationship might also lend itself to even more solutions in others. But as I was about to discover, home isn't always where your heart is. 
So I'm thinking of coming back to the apartment on January 24th. For the weekend, or...? No, permanently. Okay. I'm not really sure how that's going to work. What do you mean? Tom is still using it. Tom was one of the several rotating roommates Kirk had been hosting in our place in my absence. Like me, Tom stayed in the second bedroom of our apartment whenever his house in the hills was booked as a vacation rental. But unlike me, Tom made $15,000 a week for his rental and could quite literally afford to go anywhere he wanted. Well, can you just tell him I'm moving back? I mean, can you not really stay anywhere else? Why would I, though? That's our apartment. Actually, it's my apartment now. While it was true Kirk had been managing the rent himself for an entire year, and the smell of my PF candles had long been replaced by the scent of his used gym socks and sweat-soaked yoga mat drying over the laundry room door, the agreement had always been that I'd return after my renovations were complete in the new year. Never mind the fact my name was still very much on the lease. I couldn't help but feel a small tinge of betrayal upon realizing Kirk might have moved on without me. And in more ways than one. I thought you said that Tom was never there. He isn't. Okay, so then I don't understand. What's the problem? I just don't think we should be living together. I mean, it's not healthy. Kirk... Pilot season starts in a week. I really don't have the luxury of time to make other arrangements now, especially given my situation. My situation was this. I had no proof of employment, two dogs, a mortgage, and a vagina, which basically means rent costs more for me, unless I don't want to lower my odds of getting raped. Never mind my fickle attitude when it came to living outside of the only neighborhood that ever kept me sane enough to stay in Los Angeles in the first place. You can find another apartment, Rachel. Not in a week! Could you at least ask Tom if he'd be willing to let me stay there just until pilot season is over? Because, I mean, that's the thing. I could book something that films in another state and then I'm locked in a new lease paying for rent in two places on top of my mortgage. I mean, I guess I could ask him. I'd really appreciate it if you would. Mm-hmm. And I'll see what I can find in the interim. If I'm being honest, I had zero intention of looking. And why would I? I had my name on a month-to-month rent-controlled lease in a secure building in the hottest part of town. Not to mention, I also had hopes of rekindling the longest relationship I'd ever known. Although that wasn't really looking like it was off to a particularly good start. But when the universe intervened on my iMessages as soon as the following day, I couldn't help but rethink my plan. Hey Rachel, this is Brandon, Pete and Stacy's friend. Are you still looking for a room to rent here in LA? Pete and Stacy were former neighbors of mine who had recently moved across the country from the building I previously shared with Kirk. I'd been keeping in touch with them despite the distance, which is pretty impressive given the fact that's something people in Los Angeles rarely ever do, even if someone's moving as close as over the hill. Anyway, they'd mentioned me to their friend Brandon when he'd been looking for a new apartment and someone to share it with. Now, months later, Brandon apparently found himself in the same position yet again, just as I happened to find myself in the 11th hour. My roommate is moving out due to the teacher strike, and I was wondering if you'd be interested in renting out that room. (sighs) Well, as luck would have it, actually, I am looking. Are you still in the same spot? We are. Thank the gay gods. Despite the fact it was, unfortunately, a complex, 
Brandon's building was roughly in the same area as my apartment with Kirk, which solved the problem of having to interrupt my fantasy of living like the real-life Carrie Bradshaw in my own private version of the Upper West Side. Though I'd overcome the location hurdle, I knew there were still several more pressing hurdles I'd yet to get over before either of us could celebrate. So my baggage is that I can really only commit to a month-to-month, and I do have both of my dogs. Not sure how that would work with what your building permits. I braced myself for his response, fully prepared for a case of too good to be true. But as it turned out... As long as they get along with our dogs, we're good. When can you move in? Committing to an apartment sight unseen was not something I'd normally agree to. But with Kirk throwing a wrench in a ticking clock, Pete and Stacy's assurance that Brandon and I would live well together, and my therapist telling me to stop fighting the universe and start yielding to the easier opportunities it presented me with, I couldn't help but say yes to what appeared to be divine intervention. Less than a week later, I pulled into a loading zone to unpack my belongings. I'd never noticed the apartment community that stood less than a mile from me for decades, let alone had I ever driven through it, mostly because it's a gated community and no one can get in without proof of residency. But when I arrived, I found myself pleasantly surprised by impeccable manicured grounds that offered saltwater pools, a gym, dry cleaning services, fitness classes, and even a private cafe nestled in one of the many parks scattered around the 160-acre property. It was a city within a city, a hidden gem reminiscent of Columbus Circle, with a giant historical skyrise situated across from a park that might as well have been modeled after Central Park itself, even boasting similar landmark fountains. The fact it reminded me of anything New York only fueled my optimism as I slowly allowed myself to believe this unexpected and sudden change of plans really was for the best. After riding the elevator 17 stories, I located Brandon's front door at the end of a narrow hallway and bent down to retrieve the key he'd left for me under the doormat. I couldn't wait to see what would be waiting for me on the other side, especially since the grass outside was already literally greener. Never mind the fact Stacy and Pete had gone on and on about how beautiful Brandon's space was, the view, how well he'd decorated, and how much fun they thought we'd have together. I, for one, couldn't wait to start swapping dating stories, like the cum we'd both seen swapped in gay porn, or to flatter ourselves enough to think our bitchy and hilarious commentary while watching The Bachelor warranted the wider audience of a podcast, or to compare our taste in men as we bar hopped between dance clubs in West Hollywood, But as soon as I turned the key in that auxiliary lock, I wanted to turn around and bolt myself. The apartment was filled with a kind of mid-afternoon sunlight that intensifies being carsick. Extreme rays of heat bounced off a sunshine yellow painted wall, throwing a spotlight on a cluttered space that was riddled with unkempt and nonsensical plants, like poinsettias, despite the fact it was already nearly February. More than half the kitchen countertops were littered with either paperwork or food that wouldn't fit inside the pantry of the tiny gallery kitchen. The furniture was covered with laundry and ratty throw blankets his dogs had chewed holes in out of anxiety. And undersized pieces of non-complimentary art hung haphazardly on Crayola-colored walls. It was an interior designer's wet dream and worst nightmare all at once. It seemed that in unlocking the front door, I'd unlocked some of my greatest fears realized. Excuse me, you guys. I pushed past the dogs who seemed as stressed out as I was, rolling my suitcase over their toys and balls of stuffing that had once been inside of them. I made my way toward where I suspected my bedroom might be and did my best not to freak the fuck out, 
though I could already feel the wheels starting to come off, and I don't mean off of my suitcase. In a desperate attempt to restrain myself from spiraling, I began reciting the mantra my grandma had taught me over and over again. This is just temporary. Everything is temporary. Despite the fact my breath was shallow and it felt like I was being strangled with the Christmas lights still adorning the windowsills around me, I told myself this was all happening for a reason. I was supposed to learn something from this experience. Aside from the fact that setting expectations, especially via a stereotype, is generally a bad idea that can lead to dangerous assumptions and rather disappointing outcomes. As I rounded the corner to go back downstairs for another load, I reminded myself that just as most of them had in the past, my initial feelings of negativity would most likely turn positive. I was simply having a reaction to change, a reaction that would in fact change itself, so long as I kept an open mind, or kept within the confines of my bedroom anyway, which is exactly what I attempted to do once Brandon came home from work that evening. Hi. Hi. Oh wow, you're already all unpacked. Yeah, I um, just wanted to get my space situated so I'd be able to concentrate on all my work. It looks great in here. Thanks. I'm sorry the rest of the house is so messy, by the way. I wanted to get it all cleaned before you got here, but I haven't had a day off, and Lord knows Alex won't do it. Alex was Brandon's boyfriend, a Brazilian twink who idolized the Kardashians and Housewives franchise, and who I also supposedly shared the apartment with. He worked long hours at a hair salon he co-owned with a few of his friends in Beverly Hills, where they'd often go out for drinks after the workday until all hours of the night, a point of contention in his relationship with Brandon, I'd later learn, that often resulted in Alex sleeping elsewhere, hence why it took over a week for me to first meet him. Alex doesn't ever clean? (laughs) No. He thinks everyone should just have a maid. Oh, that's funny. My ex always hired maids. I'm just like... If you don't want to deal with cleaning up your own skid marks, what makes you think that someone else should? (laughs) My ability to empathize has often served me the same way I imagine the red pull tabs on an airplane's life vest might. You know, just before plummeting into the abyss. I've clung to this quality in my most uncertain and seemingly uncontrollable moments, using it comedically to help conceal my real feelings from people I hardly knew, while simultaneously making them feel incredibly validated. It's how I've not only managed to earn a living, but it's also how I've managed to maintain friendships with both Republicans and Democrats. But if I'm being honest, my empathy is also a tsunami that makes having a life vest irrelevant in the first place. It's what's caused me to trust the wrong people, get taken advantage of, put myself in bad situations I can't get out of, and it's encouraged me to rationalize away the truth on more than just one occasion. Like, say, for instance, when people insinuate they're cleaner than their apartment might otherwise convey. But when I woke to the sound of Brandon vacuuming the main living space the next morning, it was all the little evidence my empathy needed to shut down any skepticism or extreme caution my intuition was otherwise exercising. When I got back from an audition later that same afternoon, my empathy had even managed to generate genuine optimism when I started to convince myself this temporary living arrangement might actually turn into something more permanent. After all, the dogs were all getting along, the apartment community was awesome, and once Brandon had cleaned the apartment that second day, it was a lot easier to find all the other things that there were to love about it. The sunsets from my bedroom window, for instance. The frother he had that warmed my coconut milk in the mornings and the -the glow-in-the-dark stars on my bedroom ceiling that had been left behind by the occupant before me. 
I loved how they reminded me of the nights in the desert. I missed so much. In hindsight, I guess it's pretty clear to see how desperate I was to find and hold on to that positive with a white knuckle grip. But in the moment, I thought, so what if Brandon has poor taste and keeps Christmas decorations up a little too long? Are Christmas cheer or two or three poinsettias really going to kill me? Only if I ate them. (laughs) And while the spirit of Christmas might not have been enough to kill me, my conversations with Brandon, on the other hand, ultimately would. I'm so happy you're living with us. Me too. It's just so nice to be able to take the dogs out with someone. Alex never wants to come out here with me. That's how my ex was. He doesn't want to be bothered waking up early or picking up their poop. Last week, it was raining, and I came home at 8 o'clock at night, and he hadn't taken them out all day. I was like, babe, they hadn't been out since I left for work this morning at 6. And he's like, I don't want to get all wet or deal with their wet fur. Oh my god, so he just made them hold it? Yes. He just wants to play with them. It's like, no, sweetie. You have to take care of them. They're your dogs, too. Yep. That's how Kirk was. Well, I was initially excited by how much Brandon and I connected over our similar relationship woes and conservative spending habits. It didn't take long for me to notice that was all he ever talked about. We went out to eat with Alex's friends again last night. I told him, babe, We can't afford to be going out to eat every night. It's expensive. Plus, we just spent $2,000 on a trip to Hawaii, where we had to stay at the same resort his friends were staying at so that they wouldn't think we were poor and take the helicopter tour. I'm like, babe, we're going to be poor if you keep living like a Kardashian. The truth was, Brandon was one of those boundaryless people who, once he had your consent the first time, would only continue to dump his problems on you. He talked at you, regardless of whether or not you were even paying attention, would interrupt with a non-sequitur about himself, and was completely incapable of picking up on any social cue that either he or his timing might be inappropriate. Like, for instance, when I was trying to work in my bedroom with the door closed. Hey, are you busy? Yeah, I'm just trying to study for an audition. Well... Alex spent the night with his friend again because we got into another fight last night. I didn't want to pay for his friend's dinners. When we all went out, he was like, all my friend's boyfriends treat their friends to things. And I told him, sweetie, we can't afford to live like your friends do. Like, if that's the lifestyle you want, then you need to find a boyfriend who's a sugar daddy because I can't afford the life you want working at Windows. And he keeps telling me he wants to get married. And I'm like, babe, whenever you talk about marriage, like... It makes me think you're just in a hurry because you want a green card, not because you actually love me. Brandon? I only want to get married once to someone I love. Brandon, I'm working. By now, Brandon had had this same conversation with me multiple times, if not just in that week alone. And if there's one thing I hate more than people repeating themselves, it's when they repeatedly complain about things they have absolutely no intention of resolving. I'm sorry. It's just I only have a little bit of time left to work on this. It's okay. We'll talk later. It didn't take long for my patience with Brandon to run very thin and for my skeptical intuition to tell my empathy to go unfuck itself. A task that, as it would turn out, wouldn't be so easy. While I eventually managed to avoid conversations with Brandon, there was much else I couldn't. Like, for instance, waking up to a kitchen full of the previous night's dinner's ingredients left out on the counter alongside the pots and pans that were used to cook them in. In fact, that scene had become about as routine as Brandon and Alex's quarrels. 
as did the 20-minute average I spent each night circling the lot looking for a place to park. All in all, the charm of the apartment complex was beginning to wear off quickly as well, and the lack of sleep I'd been getting certainly wasn't doing me any favors either. It was bad enough Brandon and Alex were night owls who had their TVs turned up like it was a Dolby advertisement playing at the movie theater. That is, if they weren't duking it out. But every single morning, I'd wake to the sound of multiple garbage trucks emptying the building's dumpsters just outside of my bedroom window. And sometimes, if I was real lucky, that would be drowned out by the sound of the fire truck engine coming to rescue yet another person trapped inside yet another broken elevator. Power outages had also become the norm, and once a Jewish friend of mine said, This entire place reminds me of a ghetto in Nazi Germany. This show is supported by State Farm. Insurance is a part of any solid financial plan. Making sure you have the important things in life covered is one of the best ways to give yourself a little breathing room when things go awry. It's important to protect not only your business, but yourself as a business owner and all current and future team members. State Farm agents know what it takes to run and protect a small business because State Farm agents are all small business owners and they live and work in your community. So they're deeply attuned to what's happening with other small businesses in your market. If you have a small business and are interested in making sure you're protected, reach out to your local State Farm agent to learn more about what you need. They'll help you find the right policy at the right price for your business. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. It was hard to see it as anything but. By mid-March, I could feel my dogs getting as bitchy as I was, which makes sense, given the fact dogs often take after their owners. It was only a matter of time before they became so temperamental, I had to bring them to stay with Kirk, if not to avoid getting into another fight with Brandon's dogs, then to relieve the guilt I felt about leaving them behind in the apartment whenever I had to be somewhere. Trapped inside a dark room with one window, no dogs, no air conditioning, and no sleep, I slowly began to lose more than just my optimism. I suppose it was a good thing my bedroom had only one small Manhattan-sized window. It made for less of a temptation to want to jump out of. Mom, I, I can't be here anymore. I just, I can't. Calm down, sweetie. Every time I pull in here, I shake. Every time I wake up here, I shake. I physically shake because this place is so stressful. I can't leave my room because the rest of the apartment looks like a bomb went off, or because Brandon will accost me with his financial problems or toxic relationship dramas. And I can't have friends over because Brandon's dogs will attack them. Sidebar. My friend Lorena had come to visit me at the apartment one time, whereupon Brandon's dogs barked at her incessantly before one of them ultimately bit her ankle, sending her running for the elevator. To that dog's credit, though, she was on to more than just Lorena's ankle. But more on that later. I can't even go out at night because if I'm not back by a certain time, there's no parking or the guard gates are locked for the night. Lorena's right. This place is one stop away from Auschwitz. Could you stay with her? No, we already tried that. She couldn't handle the dogs. She couldn't handle the dogs? They just lay there. She was ugly crying over her loser boyfriend the one time we went over there, and the dogs couldn't handle that decibel of hysteria. They got all skittish and she freaked out. I don't know what to do, Mom. I, I can't go back to my house because people are staying there. I can't go back to the apartment because Kirk doesn't want me there. I literally have nowhere to go. I couldn't help but feel an immense resentment toward my ex in that very moment, as I envisioned him sitting in the neighborhood I loved, in the apartment I called home, with the two dogs I adopted near the neighbors I called friends, 
fielding calls about his accelerating career in Hollywood. All the while, I sat trapped inside an 8x10 prison cell between two quarreling queens, sleep-deprived and alone, while attempting to procure a job in the most intense season of rejection an actor can experience. Everything felt so horribly unbalanced and unfair, especially when I felt I'd been the one to put forth all the effort. Putting the relationship first, admitting when things weren't working, working on what wasn't, and then ultimately deciding to end things when it appeared as though they never could. I'd been brave enough to make all the difficult moves, metaphorically and literally, specifically loving myself when I felt he couldn't. As hard as I tried, I couldn't make sense of what fucked up karma the universe was delivering to me now as a result. I think you should talk to Kirk again and tell him he needs to honor the agreement you both made before you moved into the house. I already did. What did he say? He said he doesn't remember the conversation going that way, but I know it did, Mom. I know it. Because I had that whole breakdown before I even left for the desert, and he was the one who told me I could always come back. Then that's what you should do. How? It was hard to see past all the tears that had taken over in the wake of my feeling displaced, let alone enough to see any clear path toward a resolution. The only thing I could see were what felt like my mistakes. And just like that, I began to question all the decisions I'd made the year prior. While I may have set out on a big adventure of self-discovery and independence, all I seemed to be discovering was what a complete and utter failure I was on my own. All right, welcome back, everybody. That was episode, gosh, what is that, 11? Episode 11 called No Place to Call Home. Um, So let's talk about why I told you this story. So this is the first time I started to actually observe someone without boundaries and witness really how it was affecting me directly. My therapist and I at this point had already discussed boundaries just like you and I have last season. And it was something that I was familiar with, but I'm one of those people where I'm I'm really hands-on and visual. So even though I can hear a lesson, I don't necessarily absorb that lesson unless I've lived it enough to really understand it. And I've always been that way. But she and I had talked about it many times. She had given me the same list that we do have up on the website in case you're interested in looking it over. And so at this point, I kind of had my ears perked up and was on the lookout for things. And even though I may have been absorbing them subconsciously, I hadn't yet caught up consciously. So this was kind of that point where I started to fully understand it and those things were happening. So let's reevaluate how I ended up in this position to begin with. So going back to the very beginning, I want to talk about the apartment that I shared with Kirk, because a lot of people in my personal life that know this story and were there to witness it real time never really understood how Kirk and I were able to live together and why I wanted to go back to that place so badly. Believe it or not, Kirk and I lived together for a good year to a year and a half where we were literally just roommates. And it turned out that we were better friends than we were partners in a relationship together. And that aside, this apartment 
was the only building that I had been able to call home for more than two years. So it was this it's it was the single place in my entire life that I had lived the longest, in other words. My family moved around a lot growing up and I guess for me, this apartment really not only represented a lot of really monumental moments in my life. It's when I booked Dumb and Dumber. It's when I booked Sleepy Hollow. My relationship with Kirk was, for the most part, a positive one. A lot of things that were worth celebrating were happening at that time. So it was just representative of a lot of positivity and almost like a good luck charm, if you will. But aside from that, it was the single place that I associated with stability because it was stable for me. It was the most stable place I'd ever been. And that neighborhood in particular, when this story was taking place in real time, I had lived there for, gosh, almost a decade. And that was also the longest I'd ever lived anywhere outside of Phoenix, Arizona, where I grew up and went to high school. So I was super familiar with that area, that part of town. I had my grocery store. I had my tailor. I had my art store. I had my favorite restaurants. I had my neighbors that I knew. And everything, my favorite part about it was that you could walk everywhere. And everyone who lives in L.A. and everyone who knows of L.A. knows that the traffic is just unbearable and you spend 90% of your time in a car by yourself. So the fact that there was this much community available to me in this neighborhood and you could walk everywhere was just lovely to come home to. Not to mention the fact, and I said this in the story, it really did feel like my private version of the Upper West Side <laughs> because of that. So in the Upper West Side, you have a lot of these brownstone apartments and walk-ups, and they're, they're just beautiful. And they have a little more space than other apartments that you might find in the city. That's the case with this square mile in Los Angeles. So instead of them being brownstones, they're all what they call Spanish-style fourplexes. So think of a duplex, but instead of two units, it's four. And they are all built between 1920 and 1940. And for the most part, especially now because it's been historically preserved, thank you, L.A. County, finally, everything is true to its original form. I mean, you have original tile in the bathrooms, porcelain bathtub, like things that you just don't find so easily now and things that are made, things that were made, unlike they ever will be again. So I I loved this space because, I mean, it really did. Anyone that went there, it, they said it felt like a condo. It was, you guys, it, it is actually the size of my current house was the size of this apartment. So and it had those stairs that you would walk up to. And then there was this big, beautiful door. And really, I think I was also super in love with the architecture of this particular building, though I had my issues with my landlord. She was very, very good at maintaining the building. And for that, I will I will always love her for um, just as somebody that's really enthusiastic about architecture and design. So that is why <laughs> and you can hear it in my voice still, I'm sure. I was and am still so attached to that place. Kirk, on the other hand, this was kind of a, an issue of pride, admittedly, that got in my way. Kirk Kirk kind of saved me. So before I booked Dumb and Dumber, I was broke to where I couldn't even afford to move out of the apartment that I had to get out of. So I ended up moving into a storage unit and then moving in with Kirk and his current roommate in this apartment that was just god-awful. It was so dark. It was up by Runyon Canyon, 
those of you who are, are familiar with that hiking trail, it's just, it's not my scene. That's what I'll say. And I really didn't like the building, not to mention the fact that that apartment in particular, that living situation, it was just very messy and depressive. And we're going to get into why aesthetic and lighting and everything like that is so important to people, whether you're aware of it or not, but specifically important to me. I'm very aware of it. But um, I was living with them, which I'm so grateful for. But obviously, Kirk and I wanted our own place and we wanted to move in together. I think we would both admit it happened a little bit more on warp speed because of my situation, needing a place to go. But then when Kirk started looking, I told him I will only live within the square mile (laughs) because I missed my home. And that was where my previous apartment had been. And that is what I thought home to be. So we only ended up in this neighborhood because I was so fickle. But Kirk ended up being the one that found the apartment. And when he kind of for lack of a better term, came into my world, my community, he grew very fond of it very quickly. Who wouldn't? I mean, you guys, this is seriously one of the coolest parts of Los Angeles. It's just like a network of of industry professionals and creatives that are all kind of just in the same place in life. It's just really comforting. I don't I don't know how else to describe it. And it also had young families and Kirk really wanted a family and I think being around that was comforting to him. He he was from the Midwest and they uh they like green and they like to be able to go outside and have beers and like, you know, barbecues and things like that which They happen all over Los Angeles. I'm a homebody, so they definitely happen more than I'm aware of, I'm sure. But in this particular, let me just give you guys an idea. So there was one New Year's Eve where our upstairs neighbors were having a party and then Kirk and I were having a party. And at around like 10, our neighbors who were the same neighbors I referenced in the story that referred me to live with Brandon... They kept party hopping and eventually all of our units, all four units just opened the doors and everyone could just go to whatever party. It was just one big building party is what ended up happening. And this was something that happened frequently. We would go in the back by the garages and we would like play games like cornhole and have mixers and celebrate things. It was just super, super cool. And it it reminded me nostalgic wise of the stories I'd always heard both my grandma and mom talking about from their childhood when they grew up in Chicago and people would do this and they'd hang out of um, the fire escapes and things like that. It just it was a very, very cool vibe. And obviously it wouldn't be hard to fall in love with that. But I don't think that Kirk ever felt the level of love that I did for this neighborhood and community. So at the time, And you recall from last season, I was going back and forth because I was renovating this home that I had in the desert. And it was a real estate investment. I wanted to potentially have an Airbnb to have kind of not disposable income, um, passive income, and be able to escape somewhere to go concentrate on writing, on working on this podcast, all these things. Because the reason you never hear city noises while I'm recording this is because I'm in the desert and I've got like two and a half acres between me and my neighbors, which is lovely. But that also did not appeal to me to have 365 days a year. I'm a city girl. I needed to be in the hustle and bustle and feel motivated and inspired. And so it was always my intention to be in LA. And when I had moved, 
I kind of had a, a mild freak out because it felt like I was leaving L.A. and I wasn't ready. And so Kirk had been the one to kind of calm me down and tell me, that, don't worry, you can always come back. It's always going to be here. That is why when he suddenly changed his tune, I was so thrown off. And because of the timing of everything with pilot season, I really didn't have time to focus on anything other than the bare essential, which was at this point just getting back to L.A. and having a roof over my head so I could come and go to auditions. So though I really wanted to go back to the apartment, there was a part of me that also wanted to respect Kirk because he had found the apartment. But more than that, because we we really did have a great relationship. And I'll tell a story in a future episode about that because it really is beautiful and rare. And it shouldn't be. It should be very common. He and I are still friends to this day. And we talk all the time. And we help each other. And that's the way it should be. If you've loved somebody once... There's no reason to not continue to love them if there was no other problem in the relationship than you guys just weren't meant for each other, which that was the case in this instance. So I did want to respect him, and I knew that he was really trying to work on his own personal evolution and growth, and having me there would have been a hindrance to that. I understood that. That was communicated to me ultimately. And that is why, much to my Aries rising dismay, I didn't just bust through that wall and get what I wanted. I chose to kind of back off and explore a different avenue I didn't necessarily want to take. And then when I got this text from Brandon, I again thought of my therapist and thought, you're right. We talk about this a lot. Things should be easy. They should fall into place and guide you and usher you along. You shouldn't be constantly fighting hurdles and jump, sorry, you shouldn't be jumping over hurdles and fighting obstacles that are in your way to make something that ultimately at the end of the day is not meant to happen, happen. So I got this text message and I saw it as a little whisper from the universe ushering me away from Kirk. And I thought, okay, I'm, I am supposed to leave it alone and kind of explore another option. And that was super hard for me because, again, when I originally left for the desert, I never, in my head, was giving up this apartment. And I guess I should mention also, just in case it wasn't clear in the story, Kirk, out of respect to me, was letting me stay at the apartment you know, here and there whenever I was in town in L.A. But it was always for like two or three days. It wasn't for, you know, months. So I get this text message from Brandon. I go with it. I don't believe in first impressions because for me, I have found that whenever I love someone or something, a couple weeks later, I end up having lukewarm feelings about it and then I ultimately hate it. Versus when I'm unsure about something in the beginning, I usually tend to end up loving it. That's kind of my pattern and I'm aware of that pattern and I watch it. I monitor it. So when I first walked in, despite seeing all of these big ass, and I mean big ass red flags for me, I was like, okay, this is a challenge of like growing and becoming an adult. And I, I kind of took it in and, and I thought to myself, look, this is a first impression. This is your initial reaction. Knowing you, it's probably going to change and shift. No, I completely disagree now because I'm more aware of my boundaries, which is the whole purpose of me telling you guys this story. So when I walked in and I saw all the clutter and the mess and the weird ass colored walls, which are not weird, they're just, 
I'm really into design and it was really upsetting to me to see a bright yellow wall. I just think it creates anxiety. Let's talk about really quickly why clutter affects people and design so much because a lot of people don't know this. Ever since I was little, as I mentioned in the story, I have had a hard time concentrating if the area around me is in any kind of disarray. It's distracting. That for me is also because I have ADD that is triggered by things like that. I'll have to go clean before I can settle down. Even when I write these episodes, I clean before I can sit down and actually focus. So if you look at an area around you, it makes you feel a certain way. That's why when we're driving by train tracks and we see tent cities, or we see a lot of garbage, or we see abandoned shopping carts, or, or people have dumped furniture, anything like that that looks like junk, so to speak, it does something to us energetically, whether you're aware of it or not. I want you to pay attention to it the next time you see something like that, how you feel. Maybe it doesn't affect you, truly. Kirk was someone it didn't affect. I don't know how that's possible because I'm not fucking wired that way at all. But everyone will agree on this next thing I'm going to say. If you walk into a hotel, a nice restaurant, a high-end designer clothing store, or even just a store, you feel something, and it's positive most of the time. It makes you feel inspired, makes you stand up straight. It gives you motivation to obtain certain things, whether that falls into a superficial category or not. You feel a sense of happiness or joy. Some positive inspiration definitely is triggered. And to me, it sort of works both ways, in the negative and the positive. So I like to be in really beautifully, aesthetically pleasing design spaces. That doesn't mean you have to spend a fortune to do it. It's as simple as a paint color. This Friday, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley! It's anger! Let me at him! Fear! Safety checklist is complete! Disgust! Ew! Ew! Ugh. Sadness is in the house! Oh no! Hello, I'm Anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going! Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. A lot of things in my home I have made, I have found, I've dumpster dove for. Um, I'm a big fan of turning trash into treasure. But let's not discount the fact that your surroundings dictate your mood or your creativity level or your motivational drive. It does. So I just want to point that out because in a future episode, we're really going to get into the nitty gritty about things like ADD and OCPD and OCD and the differences and all those things. But universally, I do think that beautiful aesthetics are pleasing to people and it generally derives a positive feeling from us, prompting us to want to do better or achieve more so that we can get that feeling that we get when we walk into stores and are surrounded by beautiful things. Now in the story, I referenced saying that I was supposed to learn something from this. So let's talk about really quickly what I did learn. I learned about roommates. I have a hard time living with people because of this OCPD thing that I have. I have a hard time living in clutter. This was not necessarily new information. This was something I, I've known since I was small. But here were a couple things that I didn't know at the time. 
I've always had this obsession with living in New York. For whatever reason, I never have, never lived there in my life. But I'd always wanted to. And the thing that was cool about living in this community was it was probably pretty mild version of what living in New York would actually be like. All the sounds, all the people, being stacked on top of each other, being in tiny spaces, having to live with roommates to afford exorbitant rents, all those things. And what I realized is that I don't like buildings. I don't like feeling like a sardine in a can. I like space. I mean, everybody likes space, except for my friend Vanessa, who says she likes smaller spaces. So I guess everyone has different preferences. But I realized very quickly that I needed space. I needed good lighting. I needed all of these external stimuli to make me feel less anxious and ultimately less depressed and more comfortable with change. I also found that I needed a routine which I didn't have the luxury of having here just based on the fact that I was living with two other people. Guard gates were closed when I couldn't get in because I didn't didn't actually have access because I wasn't officially a resident. I didn't have a parking space, so that always dictated, you know, what time I had to be home, if I could go out with friends. I, I really did feel like I was living in a prison cell. I wasn't able to be social. I couldn't concentrate on work. I didn't want to come home, but then I felt like I had nowhere to go. It was just all of these things that I did. I felt guilty about leaving my dogs there. But the biggest thing that I learned was not to trust others as much as trusting myself. So with that, we're going to go into talking a little bit about empathy. I do love how I'm able to empathize with people. Because I feel like that is what makes me sensitive to other people's thoughts, emotions, feelings, situations. It's also what helps me relate to everybody. I love making people feel validated. And being able to relate to someone is how I validate them. Making them feel like they're not alone. I've been there too. Here's, you know, what I went through. That's the whole podcast I'm doing right now. Here's what I went through. Here's what you can take from it if it helps you. Because here's what helped me and here's what hurt me. It also allows me to see someone else's perspective. And then it can change mine for the better. And it it makes me just a more sensitive person in general. It puts me in a bigger state of gratitude, perhaps to hear somebody going through something I did, but maybe they're going through it on a bigger scale. And then suddenly my problem seems so much smaller and then I'm more grateful and I count my blessings. But here's what I've learned is it actually does ultimately hurt me more than it helps me because it makes me fall in love with people's potential and therefore I am blind to their reality. And then as a result, It puts me in situations I can't get out of because I feel bad or I feel obligated or I feel like I don't know how to get out of it because I'm really afraid of confrontation. Why am I afraid of confrontation? Because I don't want to hurt someone's feelings. And frankly, I'm not the best at communication if I haven't written it down first in an eloquent way to make sure that I'm articulating exactly what I want to say. It also allows me to give people more chances than they deserve more chances than I should allow. But the biggest thing is that it causes me to choose them and their needs and their comfort over mine. That's what I ultimately did with Kirk. That's what I did here with Brandon. 
And that's even what I did with my friend Lorena, who I briefly mentioned in this episode, but believe me, she's a prominent figure in this season and you'll ultimately know why. But just to give you some backstory on the reference of her here, I stayed with her a couple of nights at her house, a house she was renting in the valley, because she didn't want to be alone. She had a very hard time being alone. She was going through a breakup. She needed someone there to babysit her, and she had even used those words. And so for a good while, I would stay with her, but it really became like a relationship. And I felt like I was just immersed into her world and didn't really have my own. It was all her furniture. It was all her things, her schedule, her food. I kind of just came in and made dinners and hung out with her when she was done working for the day. And it just felt really imbalanced and weird. And then when the proposition or the offer, I should say, to come live with her full time happened, we tried it for two days and I brought the dogs and she really couldn't handle it. It was like the one little, not little because they are the biggest piece of my life, but the littlest thing that I could bring of my life, she had a problem with. And immediately I was like, this is this is never going to work because it's her space and I'm coming into it. It will never be our space. And that's another story for another episode. So let's talk now about why it's so important to recognize when people have broken boundaries because Kirk, Brandon, and Lorena all have broken boundaries. And that's not to say that I didn't at the time because I definitely did. And that's the whole point of this story. When you have two parties engaged with one another that both have broken boundaries, they're never going to respect your boundaries. A, because you're not upholding them. And B, because they don't know how to do that because they themselves don't have boundaries that other people are respecting and they're making them respect. Here's some things to look for that will make you recognize people have broken boundaries. Again, we have this worksheet that my therapist gave me. It's on howbitchesaremade.com. It's under multiple episodes, but if you don't want to sift through them, just click on this episode and it will have all my reference material there for you. We're only going to cover the boundaries that are relevant to this story. Connecting over things that you complain about, people you hate, traumas that you have in common, etc. Those are all red flags and signs of broken boundaries. So the fact that my relationship with Brandon was initially built on and only maintained by conversations about problems was my first biggest and only sign that I needed to know that this was an unhealthy interaction I was entering into. And because I was living with somebody like this, there would be no escape. The only time there is an escape is if you're living with someone that has the same knowledge as you do about the whole concept of boundaries, because that's the only way it works, unless you have become so well-versed in them that you can kind of shift the ener- shift and manage the energy around you. That's the only way it will work. But if you're like me in this story, where I was just familiar with the idea, not really like a master of it yet, it doesn't work. It affects you. And that's what ultimately happened. It was any time that Brandon talked about his problems, I would absorb that energy. I would feel more down. I would feel negative. And then it would kind of just snowball into just this bleh feeling to where I didn't know why I was upset, angry, irritable, triggered all the time. And I'm not blaming it on Brandon. I had my own shit going on. But again, Because I didn't have my own shit under control, I wasn't able to navigate or reject or protect myself from the shit that he was throwing out toward me. Nor did I have the grace to kind of tip him off to the things that he was doing that was inappropriate. 
things that were inappropriate were like also breaking boundaries, like knock on the door. Hey, are you busy? And I say yes. And he's like, who gives a fuck? I'm coming in to tell you about my problems. That's just a very obvious one. It's a broken physical boundary at that point as well. But he would continuously talk about the same problems. And for me, we all know the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over again and expecting different results. So for me, I felt like I was listening to an insane person just talk about the same problem, same problem, same problems, but never doing anything about it. And it was very frustrating to me because from an outsider's perspective, I could barely clearly see he needed to break up with this person. But I wasn't going to tell him that. It's not my responsibility to tell him that. And it's not my business, quite frankly. Doing so would have violated his boundaries. And though I would try, because because that's what you have to do, right? When people are just throwing shit at you, the natural thing to do is offer them some sort of help. You can listen, but when that doesn't work, then you start offering help. And when that doesn't work, then maybe you start beating up on the same person that person's complaining about and you join in. Like we try all these different tactics all the time until we find one that works. Well, the only method for me that works is getting out of a bad situation, which is what I ultimately did. But I did want to talk about how Brandon would constantly talk to me about those problems and I would offer help and solutions and he didn't even hear them. So of course he didn't apply them or try them. What I have found, and I think this is a result of pop culture and just society in general, is that people like to make themselves the victim in a situation when when they're talking to someone about it. And I have found a lot of times, especially since doing this podcast and even doing this podcast, people don't want help necessarily. Sometimes they just want a bitch and they just want you to feel sorry for them. And that's a really hard want for me to deliver on because I come from a place, as you know, where everything is our individual responsibility and we are responsible for no one but ourselves. It's interesting because a lot of times, especially when I'm in production, a friend of mine will come up and talk to me about a problem they're going through that's very similar to what I'm working on and I'll share my insights with them and it just completely goes over their head and they don't listen And they just kind of tailspin and it gets to the point where I'm exhausted listening to them. And it it does. It affects the friendship. And I just want you guys to be aware of that, that that is something that can happen. And it doesn't have to. You just have to be willing to be accountable for your flaws and own them and work on being better. There's nothing wrong with having a flaw. We all have them. There's nothing wrong with making a mistake. We all have. The problem becomes when you can't admit to it. Because then you're just perpetuating the problem and pushing people away and making things harder for yourself. And that's what we want to avoid here. Perhaps the biggest violation of boundaries that I experienced living with these guys was their arguments. There was one night in particular, which was kind of the final straw, where they were screaming so loudly and I had to go to the bathroom and I didn't feel like I could open my bedroom door to go across the hall to the bathroom because they were screaming. And part of that was I didn't want them to feel embarrassed or uncomfortable seeing that I was there. But I also didn't want to be embarrassed or uncomfortable because I was there while they were fighting. It just made for a very awkward environment. And I know when people live with each other, they don't always have the luxury of fighting when their roommate's not there. That begs a bigger question about how to communicate with people when you have issues with them. But there could have been an opportunity to ask me to step out, 
there could have been an opportunity where they went outside and they removed themselves. I felt so uncomfortable. I couldn't even leave my bedroom to go to the bathroom. And I had an audition the next day. I think at the time they started fighting, it was 8. And by the time I finally decided to say something, it was 1030. And I said it in a text. And then, of course... Brandon came and apologized to me the next day, and it was just super awkward. And then we'll get to the resolve of this whole story when I finally told him, you know, like hearing you guys fight brings me back to when I was a kid and my parents would argue it makes me really uncomfortable. It makes me really anxious. I just I don't feel like this is a positive environment for me anymore and I just need to find different living situation and because I had been so hyper aware of Brandon's financial situation when I knew this was coming I started to kind of strategize and remove myself from things emotionally I was like okay I need to get my security deposit back and he's told me he has no money. I need to make sure that he pays me that money back. How do I do that? And so I went into this state of protecting myself because at this point, I knew I needed to get out. I wasn't happy. I was miserable. I'd given my dogs to Kirk. I just, I felt like a shell of a human. And I, this was not the life I wanted for myself. Plus, I wasn't getting sleep, you know, the basic human necessities. So I told him that I was giving him my notice and that I wouldn't be paying rent. He could just take my security deposit as rent. That way, I didn't have to pay him any more money and worry about chasing it down. Why am I telling you this? I am telling you this, ladies, because, and men, because these are things that you should really think about when it comes to protecting yourself from a, from a survival standpoint. When you're in a situation that makes you uncomfortable, especially, you really have to think a lot beforehand of how, what your escape strategy is going to be in a way that is safe and um, protects your assets and your ass for that matter. So if you need to talk to people about it beforehand, do so. But I would strongly advise against knee-jerk reactions. I mean, I wanted to move out at least a month before I did. But um, I did still need a place to live. I needed to make other arrangements for where to go. And I needed to make sure that I got my money back because money was very precious at that time to me especially. Then what I ultimately did, and this was a little sneaky, but again, girls got to do what a girl's got to do. Kirk had reached out to me to tell me that he was going out of town and that I could stay in the apartment if I needed to. So I went to the apartment and I noticed the bedroom that used to be mine, didn't look like anyone was living there. And I decided then that I was just going to move in while he was gone. So I took all of my stuff from Brandon's apartment and I put it back in my old apartment. And when Kurt came back, I said, hey, Rumi, what's up? <laughs> I did what I needed to do for me. Maybe that's something I should have done from the get-go. But at the end of the day, I did feel like a failure as the story ended. And to conclude this episode, we're going to talk about that. I decided to take the apartment back because I had no other option. I really didn't. I told you guys my baggage. I had two dogs, no job, a mortgage, and I couldn't afford getting a new apartment at the rate that the rent was at the time. I didn't have proof of income, so I wouldn't have been able to get an apartment. I had two dogs, which most places don't even allow pets, let alone two, and I wouldn't give them up. 
And I couldn't go back to my house in the desert because it was being rented. I had nowhere to go. So this is what I did. And did I feel bad about it? A little bit. But at the same time, my name was still on that lease and I was entitled to the apartment. I moved back in and I realized I'm the one that ended things with Kark. I didn't end them because I didn't love him anymore. I ended them because I realized that I wasn't being treated the way I felt I deserved. That's not to say he wasn't buying me things and doing all these things and treating me like a princess and the fierce bitch I was. No. It was, there was no physical touch. There was no equality in the sense where I felt he valued his family and time with his family more than he valued time with me and also had no interest seemingly to spend time with my family. There didn't seem to really be any concern when I told him that our relationship wasn't good. There were a lot of things where I felt like in the very beginning of our relationship when he had been this really wonderful, doting, amazing boyfriend, it just didn't seem like he even knew I was there. And so at the end of the day, I chose myself, which is a very hard thing to do when, as women and young girls, we're taught to always kind of think about other people first. It was super, super hard, but I did it. And the months that followed were a lot harder than I anticipated them being. Not in the sense of this is going to be hard for me to get over this five-year relationship. I spent so much time and energy and memories and moments with this one person. I'm going to grieve that now, and it's going to be hard to find somebody that measures up and can take his place, so to speak. It was, truthfully, the logistics of it, the adulting of it, where I was going to go, how I was going to provide for myself. Not that he was providing for me. It was very equal. But I think like that was another issue. I would have liked to have been with somebody that knew I was busting my ass and if I needed help financially, would have offered it to me instead of operating like we were just two parties in a relationship. And I think that that was a thing for me where... I liked that in the beginning, but I had spent so many years dating people I took care of and I had never dated someone that took care of me when it really mattered because Kirk, again, I can't emphasize enough, was a great boyfriend. He did treat me to things a lot of times, but the conversation and topic of money was always a very uncomfortable one. And I think when you're acting in a partnership, particularly one of five years where then you would be exploring starting a family and getting married... The topic of money was, it was never discussed the way it needed to be. It was always avoided, but it was always referenced in the most tense of ways. I think this was a time in my life where I was really trying to figure out how to take care of myself in a time when it was the first time I couldn't necessarily. And I think what was so difficult about that was the blow to my ego of feeling like I had failed because I hadn't set myself up for success, coupled with the fact that I had no one to fall back on. I think that that was really, really hard for me to digest, process, and move forward on. And I got so down about feeling like I failed myself that then I started to rethink the decisions I made as if I'd made mistakes. Years later, I look back and I know that I didn't. I know I got out of a relationship that wasn't, you know, it had become stagnant. It was complacent. I got out of that. I got out of a situation where I was living with incredibly toxic energy that was not serving me. In fact, it was really hurting me. 
And then ultimately at the end of the day, I put my big girl shoes on and I did what needed to be done to take care of myself regardless of whether or not the shit it was going to stir up or kick up. And it did. Believe me, it did. But here's kind of the conclusion. I love this quote that says um, you have to pull an arrow back at first before you can release it and then shoot it forward because I think that that is true of life. We make these big decisions and we don't always think about the neg. We, we tend to think about the negative consequences, what could go wrong and what might not go wrong. We think less of the positive consequences. Positive consequences would be, you know, I, I moved in now and I'm happy, but where does that leave everything else? We don't always think about the domino effect as intricately as we should. And ultimately, I would take a few more steps back before I would move forward. But what happened once I moved back into the apartment and I felt like my life was so drastically different from a time when I'd left it and wasn't ready to leave it was I tried to get that old life back. And that manifested in the way of me trying to get back together with Kirk, something that was not right for me. But I was questioning these decisions that I had made because I didn't like the immediate outcome that I was experiencing. So here's what I have to say about that. There's always going to be consequences. They're not necessarily permanent consequences. They're temporary. They're growing pains. Nothing worth having comes easy. And there's always going to be setbacks. And you cannot judge a situation until the dust settles and you know what you're really then dealing with. I was too caught up in feeling like I wasn't working. I had no place to live. I had no boyfriend. I had nothing going for me. I had no purpose. That's how I felt. So then I was trying to make decisions from that place, which is the worst fucking place to make decisions from. That's why we always emphasize the importance of being healthy and being aware of boundaries. So what I learned was how to deal with people with broken boundaries. Again, refer to the boundary list for clarification. If you're somebody that's so one of the best things that happened when my therapist gave me this sheet was I realized, first and foremost, how I violated other people's boundaries. That was not what I anticipated taking away from the sheet initially, but that was the first thing that I thought about. So I want you to do that. Because I think it's a good starting place. You start to think about the ways you violate other people's boundaries. Then you'll start to realize when they violate yours. Then you'll start to realize where you don't have boundaries and where you should. And what boundaries you have that might not be necessary. And then you'll start to um, recognize other people's boundaries as well. So body language, huge indicator. If people are turning away from you, if they're you know, kind of one foot out the door, so to speak, or maybe even literally one foot out the door, pay attention to that. They want to disconnect. Be direct with somebody. You don't have to be mean about it, but be direct. Be very clear. Hey, 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 I know you really want to talk to me right now, but it's not the time. Let me hit you back when I'm ready. I do that all the time. My parents will call. I don't know. This might be extreme. I'm still finding my balance. It's a work in progress. We all are. My parents will call and they'll be like, hey. And I'm like, hey, I can't talk right now. I'm working. What do you need? Perhaps that's too direct. But it is a very staunch boundary. People know you are not going to be talking to them right now. Practice being direct. Don't pussyfoot around things. When people talk at you, listen to them. You don't have to respond. You don't have to give them advice. You don't have to relate to them to validate their experience to make them feel heard or better. You don't have to do anything. Because I do think that Brandon interpreted that as an invitation to do it more and more and more. 
So I think if someone says something about something going on in their life, you can nod and listen and be like, I understand. Yeah, that sucks. And then disconnect. You don't owe anybody anything and constantly be checking in with yourself. Okay, the way this person's talking, how's it making me feel? Or maybe you're just having random feelings and you're like, why am I feeling this way? Analyze that and link it to boundaries and see where you're at. I began doing this a lot after my experience with Brandon because it just affected me so severely. And as I've mentioned before, this is going to be a big focus of this season, but it did help me to then start examining all my other relationships, the things I was talking to people about, what I was connecting with people on, if these were people that were really showing up for me or if I was just acting as a sounding board, um, was, was someone just using me because they needed a roommate, I started really evaluating all the interactions I was having and really deciding which ones I wanted to have and which ones I didn't based on what was affecting me positively and what was affecting me negatively. So I would invite you to do the same thing because it has changed my life drastically for the better. That's why I told you this story. Because this is when that first initial seed was planted, when I really started to live the experience for myself and understand the lesson that my therapist had been trying to teach me. And it was one of the biggest, most powerful, effective, poignant lessons I've ever learned. The good news about this story is I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about how strong I am, how resourceful I can be. I learned that I never want to live in New York City. <laughs> and I learned the importance of surrounding myself with healthy people. And we will get more into that in our future episodes. If you like what you're hearing, please like, subscribe, rate, review, and share with fellow bitches you think might like this podcast too. It's super important that you rate and review in particular because it helps us get our message out and grow our audience. So please, please do that if you have a spare second, especially if you're enjoying the podcast. I also want to remind you that we want to hear from you. So email us at info at howbitchesaremade.com. You can visit our website, howbitchesaremade.com, and you can follow me at the Rachel Melvin on Instagram and across all social media platforms. Feel free to follow our guest host while you're at it too. He's at the Kevin Barrett. So that's it for this week. And remember, consistency is key. Stay bitchy, my friends. How Bitches Are Made is written and produced by Rachel Melvin. A special thank you to this week's guest stars who helped us with our reenactments for this episode. Jackson Davis, Tony Moore, Kelly Jackal, Joyce Melvin, and as always, Steve Tom. If you enjoyed this story, you're probably going to enjoy the deep dive about it too. Be sure to check back in just a few days when co-host Kevin Barrett joins me for a deep dive discussion on No Place to Call Home. Thanks to State Farm for supporting this show and helping our listeners protect their businesses and lives. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today.